Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, discussing Verdi's Il Trovatore, Maestro James Conlon contextualizes the opera through an analysis of Verdi's middle period compositions. This discussion, titled Trovatore, put in context, was recorded for LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. I know you've been concentrating today on various aspects. This is Il Trovatore, one of the most loved and maligned operas in existence. Many people's unique experience and only contact with Il Trovatore is having seen the Marx Brothers and a night at the opera. And for so many people, that's not just the image of Il Trovatore, it's the image of opera. Now, of course, that's a comedy and a wonderful one, and I must have seen it five times myself, at least. But it does express a certain attitude about Il Trovatore that I'm going to attack today. And that is that it's really nonsense. It's silly. You can't understand it, etc., etc. It's impossible to talk about Il Trovatore without putting it in the context of the so-called middle period trilogy of Verdi, which, of course, is a posthumous term. He, or nor anybody else knew it was his middle period. But if he had let's say, stopped composing or died after La Traviata, he would have already made his mark for eternity. But fortunately, he was to go on for another 40 years. And so consequently, this is a middle period. Now, the three works, Rigoletto from 1851 and both Trovatore and Traviata from 1853, January premiere for Trovatore, March for La Traviata. I cite the dates of these premieres, January 19th and March 6th, so that one does not overlook the astonishing fact that he produced both of those operas within six weeks of each other. In some respects, Verdi considered Rigoletto his greatest opera. It is certainly an opera that's looking forward, and as he's done before in the past with Macbeth, he's pushing us toward the future. In a different way, La Traviata is also pushing us toward the future. Il Trovatore appears to not be doing that. In fact, it seems like it's putting an exclamation point on the past. Those who consider these operas old-fashioned Actually, we have lost contact with how revolutionary these works were. The subjects, Rigoletto, a handicapped, misshapen, hunchback, a man with a misanthropic side to his personality, becomes a tragic hero with whom we identify. That's very different. Very knew that this was a daring choice. Why? Because handicapped people didn't have any place in drama. They could get on the stage or in the circus as amusement, but they were never taken seriously. The dwarfs in the courts, especially of Spain, where we've seen so much of the artwork of Velázquez, they were considered playthings of the king. And so Rigoletto was considered a plaything. But to present him with the deeply moving human melodrama and tragedy that Verdi did, that's daring. I'll skip ahead to La Traviata, which is the third of the operas, to present an opera where a woman who is a sex worker, she's called a courtesan, to present her as the heroine and to show her as more human, more empathetic, more loving, so that she could teach lessons to others who appear in that drama, is a bold, bold act on the part of Verdi's. And since we're concentrating on Trovatore, the main character of Trovatore is not the title character. The troubadour, the so-called troubadour, is the romantic, heroic, tenor leading role. 
but the true protagonist of this drama is Azucena, who is a Roma woman. Azucena is a part of a despised race, a race that has been kept out of society or on the edge of society up until today, and that they have been targeted as an inferior race almost everywhere they have been. And yet they have remarkably kept together a community, a culture, and Verdi in presenting, again, a Roma woman as a tragic character and as a character with depth and with complexities, not just somebody who comes in as Roma to come in in other operas, basically to read cards and to tell fortunes. Verdi will use that approach both in Palomín Mascara and La Forza del Destino. But here she is in the center of the drama. And so the genius of Verdi is the choice of subjects and their daring possibilities, but also in the rendering, of course, because they were all rendered with his musical genius that was able to put them in a musical form that the public was not able to resist, even though they might resist the ideas that were being presented dramatically. They were, in their different ways, successful almost immediately, and then never have left the operatic stage until this day. The fact is that if you look at the Metropolitan Opera Chronicles, you will see that the three operas, Troviata, Rigoletto II, and Real Trovatore III, are within the first dozen of operas in terms of how many performances over the years third, sixth, and 11, respectively. That means they have maintained the stage almost from the time that they were conceived. Now, their shock value or that dramatic step by Verdi, we've lost contact with that. We don't see that any longer. We don't see it because with the repetition of a popular opera like that, we tend to just see what we think is its sameness and say, well, that's an old-fashioned opera, but it isn't and it maintains its freshness in our contemporary world. The subject matter is not irrelevant. The subject matter of conflict between powerful people and people who do not have the power or the agency to fight against them, that is present in this. The overwhelming power of whatever morality is popular and the force that that exerts on people's personal lives and personal feelings. These are studied in these works. And then, of course, we get to Il Trovatore, which is probably the most fantastic. It's high romanticism, whatever that term means, and it's very hard to define it, but it's about something far away. It has an extravagant story. Some say it has an unbelievable story. We go in way into another world. We go far back to see this excited and excitable group of people who are pretty much never stand still and never think very much, but they cause and they react. The events of Il Trovatore, uh, which of course means the troubadour, plays out events that preceded the opera by at least 20 years. The biblical injunction, and I think there's about two dozen different expressions of it, that the sins of the father shall be visited on the son, that could be a subtitle for Il Trovatore. It also could be the sins of the mother will be visited on the daughter. Why do I say that? Because a generation back, a generation we never see, are at the origin of the action. There is a good Count Luna, who is loved and respected by his people. He has two sons. One, we never use his name, and the other, we learn his name, but only if you're really paying attention. 
was Garcia, which happened to be the first name of the author of the play, Garcia Gutierrez, who was a strikingly melodramatic and powerful poet-dramatist of the 19th century Spain. Verdi was to take two operas from him, and they are both accused of having incomprehensible plots that nobody can understand, Il Trovatore and Simon Bocanegra. I can promise you that if you take the time to figure them out, it all does make sense, and it all does have a reason. So let's start with our a little bit of a family tree here. We have a good count, an older man, and he has his two sons. And the younger of the son, who's an infant, falls asleep in his cradle, we presume, and he has a good caretaker there, and she falls asleep. And when the caretaker wakes up, she sees an old, and she refers to her as a hag, of a Roma woman looking over the child and giving it the evil eye or some form of curse. Now, mind you, that's an accusation. There's no proof that she was actually doing that, but it is an accusation. And the child apparently became sickly. And so the Roma woman is tied up and is executed by being burned at the stake. What happens then is that her daughter, who is Azucena, will come and take the baby of the count who she believes is the baby of the count, and throws it on the embers of the fire of the stake, and that little baby is burned up along with Azucena's mother. These ashes are discovered at the same time that the younger son has disappeared. We think that this is the son of the good count who's been burned, but it is not. Azucena, and this is the part that does stretch the imagination a little bit, was so excited that she got confused and she took the wrong baby. She actually put her own son there. If you think that that's incredible, it probably is, but I am told, but I cannot find the actual proof any longer because COVID has separated me from my copy of the original play, which is in New York and I can't get back to it and I haven't read it in about 30 years. But this is supposedly based on a true story that this mix up of babies had taken place and there was a murder. So is it that far-fetched? Maybe not. But in any case, now we've got a good father to Luna. We have two sons, an older one and a younger one. The younger one's name is Garcia. He is presumed dead. But the older count, the father, dies believing that his son is alive. He has nothing to prove it. He has no way of knowing that. But it's an intuition. And the fact is he is correct. And so he charges the older son. We're going to see him. And his father has given him a life's work, find your brother. And so he, the young Count de Luna, is moved to do this. He'll have his own story shortly. But the older Count de Luna, in essence, has accused and caused a Roma woman to be burnt at the stake. And that, of course, is Azucena's mother. Azucena, in turn, has murdered the son of the Count but makes a fatal mistake, which we know is that she put her own son there. And she is first punished for a crime. So uh, let's think of Rigoletto, who through his own doing, caused his own daughter, his treasure in life, to be assassinated by a hired assassin. So that tragedy was in the air already in Rigoletto. Now that the older son, the Count de Luna, as we know him, has a moral mandate from his father to find the brother, it's never far away. He still is always thinking of that. So we have a family tree. 
Caltaluna Sr., Caltaluna Jr., whom we're going to see, and his brother, whose name is Garcia, but goes by another name. More on that shortly. So the unnamed Roma woman is burned at the stake. Her daughter is Azucena. She had an unnamed infant son. And so we've got the generations represented there. Here's where we go from archetypes versus the deep originality of these dramatic choices by Verdi. I want to quote from um, a contemporary composer of Verdi's, who was Giovanni Pacini, who was explaining the dilemma for composers. And it was this, everyone followed the same school, the same fashions, and in consequence, were all imitators of the great luminary Rossini. But what else could one do since there was no other way to make a living? He's saying that the expectation of the public and the producers of opera were so conventionalized that if you went out of that box, you would probably have a failure. And so most composers stayed within that box. Verdi was a different type of personality. And so he was smart enough, practical enough, and desirous of success that he stayed within the bounds visually, but he was pushing at those conventions at every turn he could. Here's a letter he wrote in 1851. This is at the time that Rigoletto is being performed and written, but it's two years before Il Trovatore, and he's discussing plans for Il Trovatore with his librettist Camarado. Verdi, for one thing, says, I want subjects are new, great, beautiful, very bold, bold to the last degree with the new forms, etc., etc." If in opera there were no cavatinas, duets, trios, choruses, finales, etc., and the whole work consisted of a single number, I would find that all the more right and proper. Now, here he's speaking like Wagner or Berlioz. He's saying, I want these operas or music dramas, as Wagner called them, to be one continuous whole. And here is Verdi saying the same thing in 1851. So then he gives some specific instructions to Camarano for Il Trovatore. He says, for this reason, if you could avoid beginning with an opening chorus, all operas begin with a chorus, and start straight away with a troubadour song and run the first two acts into one, it would be a good thing because the separate with the changes of scene seem to be designed for the concert role rather than the stage. Now, in fact, he didn't exactly do all of that. He did not start with the Troubadour song. He started with the recounting of the tale of the mother of Azucena, Azucena, the old good Count de Luna. And of course, the chorus takes part. So you see how subtly he starts to make those changes. It's not all of a sudden, it's a subtle one, but it's there. And he also didn't run the acts together exactly. But you can see where he's going with this. I will say that Rigoletto and Traviata, along with Macbeth, which preceded Rigoletto by four years, these are the big first giant steps toward the future. Once he's finished with Il Trovatore, he will never go back again to that strictly formulaic opera forms of arias, duets, scenes, stop and go. He'll be in and out of that for some years to come, but in the end, it's all going to be changed and he will have attained that continuous flow uh, to which he referred as early as 1851. Now, here's another comment. It seems to me that various situations don't have their former power and originality. He's speaking of the original dramatic draft and some of what Camarano has changed. Above all, I find that Azucena has not retained the novelty and strangeness of her character. 
You see, he wants something that's new and different. I find that this woman's two great passions, filial and maternal love, no longer emerge in all their strength. Now, he managed to bring that back in Azucena. The love and regret and traumatization of the loss of her mother and her devotion to her adopted son that she knows is adopted, but he does not. And we theoretically do not know either. He says, I would not want the troubadour wounded in the duel. The poor troubadour has so little going for himself that if we take away his prowess, what does he have left? How could he interest a woman as nobly born as Leonora? I don't want Azucena to go mad in the last act. I would like you to drop her grand aria. Now that's important. I think there is a tendency in modern day interpretations of this opera to see her as just somebody crazy, a schizophrenic type of personality who has uh, visions of her mother being burned at the stake, comes in and out of it, is irrational, is unpredictable, is pretty much mentally deranged. I would argue against that. And it seems to me that Verdi is specifically rejecting that by saying, I don't want her to go mad in the last act. And he says, first and foremost, the Roma woman is a woman of rare character who will give her name to the opera. The other role, that is to say, Lenora, to a secondary soprano. Now, there's a shock for all of us, right? Because we think of a leading tenor and a leading soprano with a subsidiary, if there is one, second soprano or mezzo-soprano. Verdi conceived the work the other way around. Azucena was the original protagonist. I say that there is a conflict here between archetypes, formal structure, old-fashioned conventions, and originality. Let's look at how, to some degree, we are dealing with archetypes. I retell this all the time, but it always gets a laugh, as it should. George Bernard Shaw's question, what is an Italian opera? His answer, the soprano wants to make love to the tenor, the tenor wants to make love to the soprano, and the baritone doesn't want to let them. Now, there it is in typical GBS style, very pithy and to the point. But if you think that statement through, you will find that it is absolutely valid, and not just for Verdi, but for most of the bel canto period, for most melodramas, and Verdi is no exception. There are hardly any exceptions. The soprano is loving and beloved. In this case, she's noble, and her vocal writing is for long, upwardly born, floating, lyrical, aspiring melodies. She has certain tonal key centers, A flat major in particular, and in related keys, but mostly flat keys. Then there's the rival mezzo-soprano. Now, when there is a second soprano or a mezzo-soprano, uh, by the way, that latter term was just beginning to be used around this time. Before that, it was another soprano. She's a rival. Usually, she is a rival for the tenor's love. And so two contemporary women are locking horns. But this is a very interesting and unique rivalry between Azucena and Leonora. Most of all, because they never meet each other and they never confront each other. The opera is constructed as a series of alternating scenes dominated by one or the other, starting with a recounting of Azucena and her mother, then a Leonora scene, which is 
where we will meet Manrico and the Count de Luna, and then we will meet Azucena, and she will dominate that scene with Manrico. And then we'll be back at the convent scene where Leonora will be appearing, and then we'll go into the third act, and that's about Azucena. And then the fourth act starts about Leonora, and they are only on stage once in the last scene of the opera, but they never address each other because Azucena is asleep in the prison, Leonora comes in, Leonora takes poison, Leonora dies, Azucena wakes up, and so they never interact, and yet they are rivals. And so how are they rivals? They are rivals in the mind of Manrico. He loves Leonora, and he will do anything to be with her, and he is on the verge of marrying her when he gets news that his believed mother, Azucena, has been captured by the authorities, and she's being tied up and probably being prepared for execution. So he runs out of the church, does not get married, and runs out as a, any young hero would do, and out he goes to save his mother. Now we have our loving and beloved tenor. In this particular case, he's apparently of Roma. He lives, has been brought up by Azucena as a part of the Roma community, and we presume that he is uh, her son because we're told that he's her son. But he's actually noble. In other words, he's, since he's the brother and the son of the old count. So he's quintessentially heroic. He's loving, he's, he has romantic lyricism and warrior-like bravery. And we're going to see that expressed, the deep lyricism of his opening appearance as the troubadour, as the trovatore, as he sings a sad song with his harp. Yet we see him rising to any challenge. In the first act, he goes and he rescues Leonora. In the second act, he goes out to rescue his mother. And I think that's summed up in his famous arias in Act 3, where, as all arias are, they start with a slow, reflective, lyric aria song, if you want. And then it's completed by the so-called cabaletta, which is a brilliant, fast, almost flamboyant presentation, which becomes an exit. It's always connected by something called the tempo di mezzo. This is the tempo in the middle, which brings about a change of mood. The mood of the aria is, of course, Leonora and his impending marriage. And then his associate runs in and says, your mother's been captured. And so he's flamed up and he's going to go out and save his mother. So we go from the lyrical tenor, the loving tenor, to the warrior tenor. And we get one of the greatest cabalettas written by, well, by Verdi, but by anybody, Di Qualapira, which of course is one of the elements that has made the opera so famous and so beloved. Uh, we've got our tenor. Uh, he doesn't have a tonal center of his own, but he pendulates between Leonora's, which is in flat keys when he's with her. And when he's with his mother, he pendulates toward hers. And hers are E minor, which is associated with her dead mother and her vengeance, and G major, which is associated with her love for Manrico, her son. So uh, he doesn't really have an identity in terms of keys and tonalities, but he always is drawn into the orbit of the one strong woman or the other. Now, the baritone, he's the obstacle to the love. Remember, he does not want the tenor and the soprano to get together. Count de Luna does not want Leonora and Manrico to get together. Why? Because he wants to marry Leonora. And from his point of view, why shouldn't he? He is a 
Count, he's noble, she is noble, she's a beautiful young woman, he desires her, and he would like to make her his wife. Of course, the fly in the ointment is that she doesn't want to, and she doesn't want to, partially because she's in love with Marico, but there may be more to it. Now, the obstacle in the case of De Luna is not just the personal jealousy and rivalry over the love of a woman, but there's also political rivalry, and that is they are on opposite factions of the many warring parties who want to rule Spain. There is a base. Now, bases are usually kings and priests and older persons and evil people. So De Luna has a guardsman. Um, he's the head of the guards. He inhabits in the first scene, E minor and A minor, which are two keys that are associated with the story of the mother of Azucena. And they're going to come back later when Azucena tells the story herself. Now, Verdi is famous for having identified the word tinta, which is a word, we know it by its cognate tint, but it's richer than that. It means um, a color, it means a a, an atmosphere. He felt that each opera had its own tinta, and it was not to be expressed through a single element, but through various elements. And let's look at the three operas again. Rigoletto, which is dark, somber, superstitious. Trovatore, which is extroverted, harsh, and violent, propulsive, insistent, aggressive, breathless. It's all action and rhythmic thrust. And then you have Traviata, which is introspective, subdued, subtle, elegant. Now, it's interesting that each of these operas had an original title that Verdi was forced to change by the omnipresent censors. So Rigoletto was changed radically because it is, of course, originally about the king of France, Francois Premier, taken from Victor Hugo, and he was simply not allowed to put a king on the stage, and in addition to that, a king who was so clearly amoral. So uh, he had to change it to a local duke, the Duke of Mantua. But the opera was originally called La Maledizione, the curse. And the religious sensibilities of the censors uh, didn't like that. And so he went from the curse to calling Rigoletto, who was, of course, the protagonist. Now, in the case of La Traviata, it was going to be called Amore e Morte, Love and Death. That offended the censors, and he found the title La Traviata, which is, of course, slightly moralizing and slightly euphemistic title, which means the one who has lost her way, meaning morally lost her way. I would argue that she hasn't at all, but I, and I think Verdi's sympathies were, would agree with me, and also the world has obviously come to love Violetta and not necessarily Alfredo and her father, Germain. Trovatore, as I explained, was originally called Azucena. And we can see the line between Rigoletto and Azucena. They are both very compelling mixtures of good and evil. Both of them lose their child through their own agency. Rigoletto hires Sparofucile to kill the Count. Gilda, in love with him, overhears that and decides to sacrifice herself. And so when the Rigoletto comes to collect the body of the Count, he discovers that he is collecting the body of his dying daughter. Azucena has caused the death of her 
son by throwing the baby by mistake into the fire. She is also responsible, if not purposefully, for the murder of her own child. So they are both morally ambiguous, but they both win our sympathy. When it comes to Azucena, she also has an opportunity to save her adopted son, who is the, of course, really the son of the old Count de Luna. She knows that, and yet she denies it. She tells the whole story about how it happens, but she immediately covers her tracks and says, no, 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 that didn't happen. I was just raving. But she does know that. She knows the real story, and she knows that Manrico, her adoptive son, is not her son, but really the son of the Count de Luna. She could save his life by revealing who he is to his brother, the Conte di Luna, because Marico does not know the story, and the Conte di Luna does not know the story, but Azucena knows the story. And yet she chooses to remain silent and have Manrico be executed at the end, and then cries out, you are avenged, mother. So what has she done? She has gone through her life with the exhortation of her mother to find vengeance on the Conte the older Count de Luna, just as the younger Count de Luna has gone through life with the goal of his father's request, almost order, find your brother. And the irony, of course, is that he finds out who his brother is at the moment he himself has his brother executed. So is Alcetrina really that crazy? And I say no. She is suffering her entire life from post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, that term wasn't around in 1853, but we know it to be a very important and in many cases widespread phenomenon of mental health because of the very, very dramatic and dangerous lives that people live with violence. And so there's no question that she is traumatized, Azucena, and that she spends her whole life with this post-traumatic stress. And her overriding emotional life is consumed by filial and maternal love. It's that love for that murdered mother and her love for the son who's gone, but her adoptive love, Manrico. Toluna is not only jealous, but he feels that the social order is being offended by the fact that Leonora will not marry him. She is choosing an inferior, somebody from a, the Roma community, uh, not a nobleman like himself. So that's an insult. And so that in addition to his desire being frustrated, he is indignant that she would choose somebody from the common people instead of him. Now, he does not know that Manrico is equally noble. He's his brother. But it's even worse that when she believes Manrico to be dead, she chooses to go into the convent instead of marrying De Luna. So he's fit to be tied and remains that way until the end of the opera. He too is punished by having lost Leonora, who commits suicide, in order not to marry him, and his brother, whom he has been searching for uh, all of his life. He's consumed with jealousy and rage. We empathize with Leonora's love. We are appalled and alienated by De Luna's constant raving and jealous rage and cruelty. Um, and in the end, Leonora is going to die just as Gilda did by self-sacrifice. She takes this poison in order to take her own life in exchange for Manrico being freed. And De Luna would have done it, except when he discovers that she has actually 
killed herself and therefore reneged on her half of the bargain. Here I'm showing how Verdi rendered unto the system the structures of the operas that they were expecting, which at its origin was a series of arias strung together like pearls so that each singer could have at least one, if not two opportunities, and depending on how long the opera was, three opportunities to show their abilities, their ability to sing long, fluid, beautiful uh, phrases, breath control, purity of tone. That was the introductory aria. That was how you met somebody. And then with that same structure, slow introduction, slow section, tempo di mezzo, that's something fast that's going to change the atmosphere and the weather of what's going on, change of heart from melancholy to exhilaration, from reflection to action, could be anything, as long as it justifies a brilliant aria, which is called a cabaletta. These are the ways that he is paying homage, or at least respecting conventions, and so that the impresarios and the public gets what it is expecting. But at the same time, he's challenging the public, seriously challenging the public, to contemplate new subjects and subjects that are socially provocative, subjects that could still be considered very contemporary today, each one of them in their different way. Now, rather than to consider Il Trovatore just a silly story, uh, incomprehensible, it's not incomprehensible. If you really, really read it over and over again, you will see that it makes sense. Think of Il Trovatore that way. The story has to be looked at several times. It is, in fact, a very interesting, dramatic story. And the fact that it is packed from beginning to end with one great inspired scene after another. Two amazing scenes for the soprano with an aria. The tenor, or probably the most famous cabaletta. The baritone even is momentarily presented as a suffering, rejected lover. The complexity of the story of Azucena and her relationship with her mother is very, very, very important and good. And by the way, the production that we would have given you this week, we're postponing it a year and hopefully we'll give it to everyone next year, is very much centered on the omnipresence of the mother and her omnipresence in Azucena's psyche. So that she's almost there as a real character. And you may remember that in the opening scene, Ferrando, the head of the guard, tells the story and he says, oh, the soul of that terrible, wicked, old Roma woman should go to hell. It's not sure that she's in hell. It is still said that she inhabits the earth and she's been seen and she appears as an owl and she does wicked things and he scares the men to death. And just then, as every good melodrama in Italian opera should have, the bell of midnight strikes and everybody's terrified. Verdi's absolute unerring sense of theater, of drama, of excitement, of expression is what has made this opera live, despite a complicated and apparently incomprehensible plot. My point, it's not incomprehensible. You can understand it, but of course, it's the music that makes all of the difference.
as Caruso first said, and it's been repeated over and over and over again, what do you need to do Il Trovatore? You need the four greatest singers in the world because each one of those roles, Leonora, Azucena, Manrico, Conte di Luna, are at the absolute pinnacle of Verdian arts and Italian bel canto plus singing, dramatic. This is the post bel canto period. These are dramatic works. Those are four quintessential roles. And if you don't have four good people to do them, it's very hard to make a trovatore work. So what does a trovatore need? It needs the four greatest singers in the world. That being said, Verdi did not consider this opera, as some do, as a singer's opera. He considered it a dramatic work that he had produced as all of his other dramatic works. And as one who conducts those works, I like to think of myself as the advocate and standing in for that drama and standing in for what Verdi wanted, which was not just a display of vocal fireworks, but a deeply felt and complex drama. Thank you very much. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera.